Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, business executives, and journalists about some of the urgent issues uh, and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today joining me is uh, Professor Nicholas Lemon. He is a veteran American journalist and author of six books, uh, including his latest, Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. Uh, he's the Joseph Pulitzer and Edith Pulitzer Moore Professor of Journalism and former Dean at the Columbia, Columbia Journalism School. Uh, previously has worked at the Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Monthly, the Washington Post, uh, and a variety of other newspapers and magazine companies, uh, writing about politics, education, social policy, and many other topics. So thank you so much for joining, joining us today, Professor Lemon. Thanks for having me. Uh, and also co-hosting this show is uh, our research associate, Sean Wang. He is a uh, sophomore major in economics. Thanks so much for joining me as well, Sean. Thank you for having me, Tiger. And thank you, Professor Lemon, for giving us the opportunity to interview you today. Awesome, Professor Lemon. So so why don't we start with your most recent book, Transaction Man? So it is an account of the sort of the U.S. Uh, economy in the 20th and 21st century, some of the transformations. Uh, it has gone through and, and its impact on all, all of us. Um, you kind of uh, presented those three uh, men, institutional man, transaction man, you know, network man, and you kind of uh, talked about the, the different eras they each represent and, and, and the impacts they had on all of us. So uh, would you mind just giving some of our listeners who haven't read your book just a very quick overview of uh, what you mean by creating those um, men and some of the eras that you uh, try to get at? Yes. So um, I guess I, I would start from the idea that um, an economy is uh, made, not born. So um, I'm, I'm trying to write a sort of political history of the American economy over about the last century. And, and so the premise that we start with is, although there's such a thing as market forces and they're real, um, different countries set up their economies in very different ways. And the way that an economy is set up uh, makes a big, big difference to the whole state of the country, not just the state of the economy, including political life and social life. Um, so, you know, the U.S. is and has always been a capitalist country, um, even before the word capitalism was invented. Um, but it's my argument that over the last hundred years, um, the U.S. has been through quite different versions of capitalism. And, and that's, you know, in any, taking on any topic of this dimension, you have to simplify a little bit. So I've done this by dividing it into three phases and uh, picking a, a representative character uh, for each phase. We journalists love characters and like to you know, use them to uh, enliven larger policy issues. Um, I think, you know, the overall argument of, of the book is that the American economy changed from being institution-oriented to being transaction-oriented um, over time. Uh, and And so let me just explain what I mean there and talk a little bit about the, the characters. And, and you can interrupt me when you want, if you think I'm sort of going on too long. Um, it's, it's important to understand first that 
around, say, the late 19th century, people who, you know, we would now call thought leaders, people who, who spent their time considering the state of the country, um, would almost all have said that the mega fact of the United States was the rise of big business, you know, the, the industrial revolution coming to the United States. Um, the country was founded and the constitutional system was devised on the idea that this was a kind of agricultural nation or maybe agriculture plus uh, small artisans and shopkeepers and people like that and a very small banking section. But in the decades after the Civil War, you know, these big industrial behemoths called, uh, which people then called them the trusts, arose. Um, and and uh, the so-called robber barons, people like, you know, John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and so on. So this was kind of topic A in American politics in a way that it, it is, again, to some extent now, but wasn't for a long, for a long time, was what do we do about this? Um, and, and, you know, I want to emphasize it's a political question because the, the question is, we have a political system and a constitutional system that's set up uh, with the idea of limiting the power of the central government. Um, and, and the founders didn't really consider the question of what if businesses grow, private businesses and private wealth grow to the point where they're equally powerful than or more powerful than the federal government. And, and that question was very much on the table you know, really from about 1890 through about 1940. Um, and the, the new, the sort of the Gilded Age, uh, all, the, all those uh, big trusts. Uh, right. So, so the era you were mentioning. Yeah. So there's a series of arguments, you know, what do you do about this? Um, and, and these are, you know, foundational during that period to American politics and to the changing shape of the parties and the changing nature of government. Um, so I want to sort of set that as a baseline. If you were born in the late 19th century and you were a sort of, you know, the version I assume of what you guys are, um, you'd be thinking, I'm going to spend my life thinking about, uh, the relationship between government and big business. That was sort of topic a, the way people now say, climate change is the most important issue in the world, or, you know, now pandemics. Um, so the first major character in the book is a man named Adolf Burley. He was born in 1895. Um, he was a, a child prodigy who had uh, gotten three degrees from Harvard by age 22 and um, managed to you know, make himself uh, one of the most promising young political thinkers in the country, um, really by the time he was in his mid-20s um, or even early 20s. Um, Burley ended up being a law professor at Columbia and um, a, a key advisor to Franklin Roosevelt. Um, Roosevelt had a, a group of three Columbia professors that were called the Brain Trust, and and Burley was one of the three, and maybe the most influential one. 
Um, I should say he was just an incredibly interesting character. He was a, a um, tiny little short guy with a very, very big personality and a very big ego who thought of himself as, you know, one of the great thinkers of human history who had been given a unique opportunity uh, to sit at the side of an unusually powerful president at an unusually important uh, moment. So Burley, um, his big idea essentially was uh, the industrial corporation, which seems to us today like a very familiar and indeed declining institution, but then was kind of new and shocking to people. This is back in the 1920s and 30s, um, that the industrial corporation was a new kind of institution uh, the world had never seen before, you know up there with the invention of church and state was the in, in, in importance was the invention of the big corporation and that these were totally unaccountable institutions uh, that were controlled completely by private interests. They were more powerful than government, more powerful than the church. Um, and they were accountable to nobody because government didn't control them. They were supposedly owned by their stockholders, but their stockholders didn't control them either. Um, and, and they were uh, already in charge of most of the American economy and were quickly moving toward total control of the American economy. So Burley's basic argument was something must be done, something very dramatic to, to control the corporation so that it does not completely dominate the world without any supervision or control. Um, and, and so the early days of the New Deal were a wonderful opportunity to do that because, you know, there was a national crisis and FDR had huge majorities in both houses of Congress. And, and so, you know, Burley was one of those who helped push through a tremendous expansion in government generally, and in particular, a very strict regulatory regime on the, you know, business of America. Um, Wall Street was tightly controlled and limited in its power by the invention of, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FDIC, all these things that are very familiar today. And then, uh, you know, the, the corporation itself became heavily regulated. So this was uh, what, what, you know, Burley felt he was creating was a regime of very large corporations whose power was balanced by the tremendously enhanced power of the central government, and that this would be the, the basis of a good society. Well, I, I read uh, Columbia professor T Tim Wu's uh, book, uh, the sort of the new Gilded Age, sort of antitrust. And, yeah, and you know, I, uh, I have to say, I have another part of my life where I'm a book publisher, and I yeah. published that book, so I know it well. Columbia Global Reports. Right. Yeah, so so I've I've I read that thing, and he when when he, uh, Professor Wu talked about, it, he said uh, he might have not sort of just agreed with uh, this kind of vision put forth by Burley or that's FDR, correct. Yeah, yeah because so, they really wanted the big government. Uh, yeah, so so Burley, this is this is an interesting point. So so Tim Wu's hero, and 
you know, be pretty much my hero too would be Louis Brandeis, who was, um, you know, a Supreme Court justice, key advisor to President Woodrow Wilson, and and he was the sort of um, great champion of antitrust. And his um, catchphrase, which Tim used in his book as the title was "The Curse of Bigness." Um, so Burley had a fascinating relationship with Brandeis. His very first job out of law school was working for Brandeis, who was a friend of his father's. But um, they, there was a really important sort of fork in the road in liberal economic thinking because Burley was tremendously opposed to antitrust. Um, and for his whole life, for decades, uh, you know, went into battle to oppose any effort to break up big corporations. So that's why Tim Wu doesn't like him. So I'll give you Burley's reasoning. Burley's reasoning was, well, um, you need corporations to be really big because it gives big government a, a, a good target to shoot at. Um, if you have a world, and this was the world he thought he had helped create, where, you know, you have General Motors and General Electric and AT&T and these, these companies that in his view were, would last forever and, and, and were like, um, you know, the rock of Gibraltar, then government can go to these companies and say, you must behave in certain ways. Um, and, and so he liked the idea of having very big corporations and very big government kind of working together with a little bit of tension to, to create a good economic society for all. Um, so, so every time um, he spent the whole, you know, new deal fighting with the antitrusters and he kept fighting them after the new deal. So anyway, Tim is right to dislike him. And then I think back then it was so much about the corporate welfare. I mean, the corporations kind of almost function like a welfare state. I mean, that's correct. That's you exactly all your benefits right. from your corporations. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. Burley, um, you know, during the in his younger and more hot blooded days, his big thing was to say corporations are a horrible, menacing new element in society, and they must be, you know, controlled get to after the second world war and Burley's now middle-aged and, and he becomes very kind of satisfied with the world he helped create. So he spent the the post-World War II years um, writing a series of books saying essentially, isn't American capitalism wonderful because, you know, we've got these big corporations and they are still dominant. In fact, they're increasingly dominant but government has grown and has made them behave. And now they're regulated um, and, and uh, they're unionized and they provide secure employment and they provide pensions and they provide healthy working conditions and, and so on. Burley just believed in a you know, managed, planned economy. Um, you guys are too young to remember, but I am not there. Just as one example, there was a federal agency which no longer exists called the Civil Aeronautics Board, and Burley helped create it. It was a regulatory agency for the airline industry. And every route 
every flight and every price that airlines wanted to do had to be approved by the Civil Aeronautics Board. So a typical Burley attitude was, isn't, isn't it wonderful that we have this system where the airlines um, you know, are basically controlled by government, even though they're private companies. So that was, that was what he thought was a sort of paradise or utopia that he had helped create. And so bringing back to this idea of, you know, this paradise and this American dream, it eventually, um, you, you mentioned in the book that it eventually falls apart and we go into this new society that's transaction based. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about, um, so what, what, what were some of the reasons why um, this society that Burley created eventually fell apart and gave rise to the transaction-based society? Yeah, so it's a fascinating uh, story, you know. Um, so I'll make a few quick points. So first of all, Burley, you know, there's an old saying, the past is a foreign country, and it really is. Um, so you, when you're doing history, you have to be really careful to understand that people in the past didn't think the way we think today. And by the way, people in the future also will, will not think the way we think today. So one thing that's very obvious and noticeable about Burley, he was, you know, the liberal establishment of his day and, and thought of himself as kind of impeccably liberal, although liberal anti-communist. He's basically, you know, spent this decades long career uh, writing book after book after book, essay after essay after essay, and almost never mentioned in laying out this liberal vision, uh, people of color or women. Um, that just was not on his radar screen. And it wasn't that he was what we would call racist. It was just like unaware um, I'm sure we're all unaware of things that will seem crazy that we're unaware of one day, but he was unaware of that. So the deal, a lot of people weren't cut in on the deal that he felt he had helped create. And, and so the political consensus behind it was a lot less robust than he thought. So that's, that's one thing that made it vulnerable. A uh, second thing that made it vulnerable was Burley and his sort of buddies thought the corporations were completely invulnerable economically, that no economic uh, distress could ever happen to them. And of course, that turned out to be wrong. The main example being, um, uh, or obvious example being Japanese and German auto companies um, becoming meaningful competitors of the American auto companies um, in, in the 60s and 70s. So that was something he didn't account for. But And then the thing that I really focus on in the book, and this gets to Transaction Man and all that, is um, if you remember, Burley started his whole career uh, saying um, the reason corporations are so threatening is they're unaccountable. And the reason they're unaccountable is they don't have to listen to their shareholders because their shareholders are so widely dispersed. Well, that really, really changed and really changed the nature of the country. Um, so here we get to the second sort of major profile type character in the book, a man named uh, Michael Jensen, who's a um, conservative economist. He's still alive. Uh, he's just turning 80 or so. Um, 
and and uh, he was trained, you know, in the very conservative economics department at the University of Chicago. He wrote a imp an important uh, and much very influential paper in in the mid nineteen seventies, in which he said um, he started by citing Adolf Burley and said Burley was right. Shareholders, uh, you know, corporations are managed, and they just ignore their shareholders completely. Uh, Burley took that fact and went with it to a place of government must step in to manage the corporation. Jensen, as a conservative, took it to a different place and said, you know, Burley's right. But the answer to the problem is to empower the shareholders and reorganize the corporation so that it will serve its shareholders, um, not uh, the interests of its managers. Um, and he proposed a bunch of ideas that, that you know, became pretty standard practice in the corporate world, um, including you know, paying corporate CEOs in stock options so that they would get very, very highly compensated if their stock performed well, um, you know, having a lot of sort of mergers and acquisitions so that the shareholders would sort of take control of, of, uh, of companies and break them apart. Uh, Jensen was an early advocate of, of what we would now call hedge funds and, and private equity companies, uh, these very powerful investors who kind of take control of, of corporations. And, you know, this created a real tsunami in the American economy. Uh, and, and one of the effects of it was it, it broke apart the idea that there's a sort of corporate welfare state, you know, that, that, that the U.S. doesn't have a European-style welfare state. Instead, it has these big corporations and they're the ones who provide secure employment, health care, uh, pensions, and things like that. So that, that you know, stopped happening and, and continues not to happen, except for a few lucky people. Um, and, it, you know, I would argue that has had a huge effect on the American economy and on American politics, because it's, you know, been a driver of inequality. Um, and, and, you know, following that of a lot of, you know, populist political energy on left and right. And I think the, the historical backdrop of that period of time was the uh, financialization that took place in the, in the 1970s, the heavy deregulation, the, the great moderation. So the, the U.S. basically kind of became the, the center of capital for the world, the, the European investors and everything, right. uh, all the money flooded in. And as you mentioned, industries like private equity uh, started to boom. And finance is very much this kind of profession that relies more on transaction rather than building things from the ground up, like the traditional entrepreneurial sense. Right. You've said it exactly right. I think this is an extremely important change in the American economy, American politics, and um, and global economy and politics. And I wrote the book really to call attention to it because I don't think people who are trying to understand the world today understand the importance of this. Um, so yes, to repeat what I said earlier, it's going from 
two versions of capitalism. One is institution-oriented with the big eternal regulated corporation as the central institution, and the other is transaction-oriented with finance much more important um, in in its economic role and deals um, with fluidity and, and to some extent instability uh, being the, the key. As a re- one of many examples of how this all plays out, in 1997, which was when, uh, you know, Jensen and his friends' ideas about financial deregulation and, and transactions and empowering finance, what you call financialization, were at their very peak. This is when the, Bill Clinton was president and, and was you know, heavily deregulating the financial system that Burley and his friends had heavily regulated years earlier. There's an organization called the Business Council, and its uh, CEOs of, of, you know, the biggest corporations in the United States, and it issued an official statement saying the purpose of a corporation is to enhance shareholder value, full stop. That is the only purpose of, of a corporation and a corporation should be judged by stock price and that's it. Um, I mention this because 22 years later, summer, late summer of last year, 2019, the same organization, the business council issued another statement saying, whoops, we've changed our mind. The corporation is a social institution and, uh, and, 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 its purpose is to serve multiple stakeholders in the interests of society, not just its shareholders. That is going right back to the old Adolf Burley vision of a corporation. Um, and I think they're clearly doing it in response to uh, a very different political mood in the world than there was 20 years ago. Uh, so Professor Lemon, I want to kind of just clarify and ask the question. So. This for decades where the transaction economy um, was using these financialization um, and deregulation to really let the market do their work. And they thought that by maximizing shareholder value by working for them, um, they would achieve the most efficient situation for the economy. Um, But you spend some of the time in your book talking about how Michael Jensen also eventually realizes that his solutions were very flawed. And with what you just mentioned with the 2019, uh, with the new... Um, document that the Business Council released. Um, could you talk about where, what went wrong exactly? Um, what happened in these four decades that ended up not producing the good that we kind of expected it to? Okay. So the Jensen's own story, we can get into or not. It, it's a um, unique and interesting. It has to do with him. Um, but, you know, let's put that aside for the moment. So what's wrong with the shareholder value regime. What's wrong, it, it's, I guess you'd say, on its own terms, it works uh, up to a point. Some would argue it doesn't work because it, it, it promotes very, very short-term thinking by, um, by corporations. But, you know, the point is, and, you know, as we were talking about earlier, uh, corporations were built up in mid-century U.S. and and many other places in in the developed world to be social institutions as well as economic institutions. They were understood 
to have a purpose of making money, but also a purpose of providing, you know, one of the core things in a good society, which is a kind of, they were the answer to the question of how is the average middle class and working class person supposed to live, supposed to have a sense of security, supposed to have the sort of the basics of life. Um, so particularly in the U.S., corporations were what we had instead of a traditional welfare state. And we're still having these debates today, of course. You know, Britain has a national health service, for example, um, that even Margaret Thatcher didn't dare to question. Um, and the U.S., it, you know, basically has a, a health care system that's delivered through, you know, private employers, particularly large private employers. And that's one of many examples of this. So when you have this system and you reorient the corporation away from uh, a mix of social and economic mission to just an economic mission and just the goal of shareholder value, you end up blowing up a lot of the basis of uh, an economically and politically stable society. And that's what happened. Um, you know, you're probably too young to have experienced this, but I'm not. Um, you know, generations, a couple of generations, at least of Americans, at least middle class Americans, kind of grew up with the idea that if you got a job in a big corporation or even in one of the traditional professions like law and medicine, and you were, you know, reasonably good at what you did, you would have a job for life. Um, your health care needs would be taken care of. Your education needs would be taken care of. You'd have a sense of security, a sense of community. And after you retired, you'd retire with a pension. So it's really, really powerful when you remove that element from a society. And that's basically what happened um, in, in the late 20th century and early 21st century. And that's the world we're living with now. But I think, wouldn't, that, wouldn't some people say that that's just kind of the nature of capitalism, you know, the, the idea of creative destruction? Yeah, but I, 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 they would say that. And I, would, uh, I want to really push back against that. So yeah. um, I had a little moment, you know, this book originated, I was invited to give a series of lectures at Stanford called the, the Tanner Lectures. I think that Princeton has them too. Um, and uh, so I gave the lectures, and after the last lecture, you know, there was a question period, and a very elderly, uh, now deceased, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist named Kenneth Arrow got up and said, you know, my dear boy, this is very interesting, but what essentially what you said isn't wasn't all this inevitable because it, it just was a result of markets functioning. And you know, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. Markets are made, not born. And there, there are a lot of different versions of capitalism. We've been talking about two very different versions of capitalism that are both capitalism. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think it's useful to say, you know, as somebody trained in history, if you, if you say in, in, in a historical context, so-and-so happened because it was inevitable, 
you know, you, you flunk out of history class because the idea is nothing is inevitable and everything could have turned out in a different way. And in this particular case, you know, you can dial, you can set the dial of, of capitalism in different ways to make it more or less stable and more or less oriented towards shareholders, et cetera. That's why, you know, Germany has a pretty good economy that works very differently than the American economy, for example. So, so, you know, once you, it's, it's like a sports game. Once you start the game, the teams play and what happens happens, but the shape of the field and what the rule book says affects the way the game is played. So, so I, I do think, it was, I don't think it was inevitable that all this would happen. I think it happened as a result of decisions that were made. That totally makes sense. It's just not very, you said it's not help, uh, useful. I would also use the term helpful. It's mm-hmm. probably not helpful to just think that, oh, it's, it's like history's wheel turns and, and the markets function and that's how we got to where we are today. I think, there, as, as you said, there are active decisions that, and conscious decisions that we've made that led to, to the current state we have, and there are solutions that we can address that. That's, that's a wonderful point. Uh, I mean, eventually, you know, Wall Street and the finance sector kind of grew so powerful that it, it was even able to survive this, you know, 21st century financial crisis uh, in 2008, very much with the help from American taxpayers. And uh, it's just gotten even more powerful today. So, in in a sense, should we not have saved the industry? Uh, do you think that would have kind of given to a different rebirth of uh, of the the American capitalist system and give us to a new rosier version? Or do you think the the rebirth kind of already happened? Um, you know, tying transitioning to your idea of network man. Okay, well, I'm going to get back to network man in a second. In the in the in the immediate sense, you know, there was a pretty clear consensus when the 2008 financial crisis happened, that we in the U.S. And, and, and other economies had really gone too far in the direction of financial deregulation. So we re-regulated the financial system through Dodd-Frank and other means to some extent. So already things have moved back in the previous direction to some extent of, 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 uh, an account of, of a financial system that's more regulated with a more powerful uh, central government role uh, to keep things going and provide safety and so on. In the immediate event of the financial crisis, you know, it, yes, you could have played it out in a lot of different ways. There's a, a Obama official named Reed Hunt, who published a book last year, the year before, very harshly criticizing the Obama administration for how it handled the financial crisis. You know, the in, in the heat of the crisis, uh, the banks, and this is a heart of the problem with deregulation, you know, as they say in finance, if you, if you completely deregulate the financial system, then the banks get all the upside and the government owns the downside because, you know, government can't say, okay, you guys screwed up. So we're going to let you fail because the argument, at least that that's going to destroy the whole economy and have a global depression with all of the consequences that would have is just too powerful. So, 
you know, you end up with these with these institutions that that have a sort of backstop. It's it's what you know economists call moral hazard. Um, they know they're going to be saved if they turn the risk dial too high and and encounter severe problems. And that's what happened with uh, with the big financial companies um, in the financial crisis. So the, the kind of liberal critique of what the Obama administration and the government did was there should have been a much, much, much bigger stimulus. Um, and, you know, that's an arguable, arguable point. Let me pivot to, but I, I want to say one other thing about this. All these issues, I said this a little bit at the outset, these issues are in play again. You know, there was a great economist um, named Richard Hofstadter, now long dead, no, I'm sorry, a historian, now long dead, who wrote a wonderful essay in the early 1960s. Uh, this goes back to antitrust. The essay was called, Whatever Happened to Antitrust? And he, and he said in that essay, from 1890 to 1940, the main event in American politics was, what do you do about the economy? And then after 1940, that became a subsidiary question. So when he's writing in the 60s, um, this, this you know, period of the corporate welfare state and saying, nobody's talking about economics anymore. They're talking about other issues. Well, now, you know, they're talking about economics again. So all the issues we've been talking about are really back on the table, you know, one-fifth of the way through the 21st century. You have... Um, you know, people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the left and people like President Trump on the right and, and you know, their equivalents all over the world um, really breaking open the late 20th century consensus about how capitalism should be managed by government. And, and you know, everything's on the table and these are now frontline issues again. So more is going to happen here. Um, you know, the overall question I'm, I'm looking at is not so much how's the economy doing, but how do you build an American economy or any economy uh, in order to be, that it would create a good life for most people, for ordinary people? Um, and so I've, I've boiled this down into three big ideas going arranged chronologically. And the first is, you know, institution oriented with Adolf Burley as, as the, the representative person. The second is transaction oriented with Michael Jensen as the representative person. But the third is uh, network oriented. Um, and the person I write about there is a man named Reed Hoffman. He is, um, uh, I guess he's now in his early fifties. And he's uh, the, a, a very important figure, sort of the unofficial mayor of Silicon Valley. That's his world, starting with when he was born in Stanford University Hospital. Um, he's best known as the founder of LinkedIn, which is, you know, the big sort of business-oriented social network. Um, and in general, he's of the founding generation of the social network era, um, on the internet, he was um, involved in in uh, starting uh, PayPal um, with a whole bunch of other people who became later influential. He was one of the first people 
who wrote a check to Mark Zuckerberg to start uh, Facebook, and he is, you know, a partner in a one of the big venture capital firm. So he he's very sort of plugged into that world and that idea. Um, LinkedIn is is an expression of a big vision of how the American economy is supposed to work. Um, you know, one way to put it is okay. The the corporate welfare state idea collapsed. The idea of you know to use an out-of-date phrase that I play on in my book, The Organization Man. That world doesn't work anymore. So what you're going to have instead is each individual person will self-manage his or her economic life and career through LinkedIn and other social networks. So it's this vision of a, of a nation of entrepreneurs who don't think of themselves as employees at all, um, but but are able to you know build a good life for themselves by uh, piecing together periods of time where they work in a particular place or different parts of freelance work, etc. Um, this is you know the vision embedded in Airbnb and and Uber and Lyft and so on and Mechanical Turk where. Um, you know, there are these economically oriented networks that allow individual people to, you know, sell products and, and arrange for gigs and all that stuff, the gig economy. Um, it, this is not at the moment a reality for millions of Americans, as far as I can tell. It's it's in its early days. So I'm, I'm really talking about it in the book as a, a kind of a dream that the Silicon Valley types have or an answer they have to the question of what do we do now? Um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that this would actually work as, as a system that would provide a good life for middle-class and working-class Americans en masse. But, but the idea is interesting and it's worth showing you, which I try to do, the, this whole Silicon Valley world from which it emerged. And I think the whole idea of Silicon Valley, you kind of touched on that when you talked about the transaction, man, as well, is the whole, you know, move move fast and break things, uh, disrupt right. the status quo, w- all with that kind of mindset. Uh, right. Uh, so in the larger sense, you know, the book is really about a mindset, trend, you know. So let me go back. There's this book from 1958 called The Organization Man by a journalist at Fortune magazine named William White. Um, and, and that term entered the language, the organization man, um, in a way that I hope transaction men will too. Uh, so the organization man was set primarily in a new suburb in Chicago called um, uh, Park Forest, um, which was filled with uh, corporate employees who would you know, put on their suit and grab their briefcase and put on their fedora and get on the commuter train in the morning and and go to work in whatever big corporation and then come home at, at five o'clock. And, and William White presented this as this kind of living hell uh, that we had to escape from. Of course, now, you know, the world he describes doesn't look so bad because it's, it's all about, you know, secure employment and 
manageable work hours. And then one of the things he complains vociferously about is there's too many community activities in, in, in Park Forest, etc. But anyway, in that era, when Americans thought about how do you solve a problem, how do you do things, how do you accomplish things, they automatically thought you'd do it through large organizations and institutions. I think now there's a, a very strong tendency, I hope it's ebbing, but it has been there for you know much of my adult lifetime, that if you have a problem, if you have a challenge, if there's something the society needs to accomplish, the way you do it is by breaking up the existing system and replacing it with something much more fluid and transactional and, and efficient. Um, so we've applied that not only to big corporations and, and you know, the financial system, we've also applied it to social problems that aren't, you know, purely economic. So, you know, like charter schools, for example, are, are an application, in my view, of that kind of thinking to the problem of the public education system. Um, so yeah, disruption is is the idea, and you know, Reid Hoffman was very very generous in letting me spend a lot of time with him, and you know, he at the time I was doing this, he has had two jobs, you know, one running LinkedIn, and the other uh, working at this venture fund called called Greylock, and um, at one point his his sort of handler said to me, "We're really excited." To have you come spend time with with us at Greylocks as we and watch us decide which industry to disrupt next, um, and that's yeah, that's what they would do. Well. Yeah, there would be. Uh, let's let's take down the hotel industry now, you know, um, and, and and they really can because they they have so much money and and they have kind of all the top talents in the world and they really just try to go out to every industry and disrupt them. But obviously, sometimes it don't work out. Often it don't work out. Right. But it's, 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 you know, look, I don't know you, but if you're a junior at Princeton, you got to be in a world where, um, you know, places like private equity firms, venture firms, uh, hedge funds, and tech firms are, like occupy a lot of mind share for you and your friends as, as potential future roles for you. Absolutely. In society. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that didn't, that wasn't the case, you know, 40, 50 years ago um, in the organization man era, people like Princeton undergrads would be sitting around saying, well, should I work for Procter and Gamble or General Motors? Um, so, so, you know, that's a big sort of cultural shift in these elite institutions. And, and I really want to quickly add on that, uh, Professor Levin, because an, an interesting phenomenon right now is that, uh, a lot of students are now not even thinking about going to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or financial institutions anymore. They're really talking about startups. You know, yeah. we want to go to a, a disruptive place, a place where I can maximize my learning. So it's not even about the big tech or big banks anymore, which probably are supposed to be the the um, representation of transaction man or the network man. But for them, it's all about the sort of the startups, which just goes back to this fluid idea or disruption idea that you really talked about. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, I mean, 
as an older person, I would say all that looks uh, a little less exciting, you know, as you get down the road of life in, in many cases, because I mean, <laughs> Silicon Valley has been wonderful about drawing very talented people into playing a game which has very few winners. Um, and, and um, you know, there are these interesting statistics, something like 75% of the startups that get funded by the elite uh, venture firms on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, California. So that's like the cream of the startups. 75% of them within five years have folded. Um, and, you know, most things pitched those firms don't even get funded. So, so uh, a, a figure you often hear in Silicon Valley is of all the firms funded in a year, one will represent 50% of the value. And let's say 20 will represent 95% of the value. So it's, it's a, a highly risky and unequal game um, that produces, you know, a lot of innovation, but also it doesn't, in my view, answer the question of how will most Americans live? So you don't think some of those, the, the quote unquote tech innovations really try to get to the, the bottom of the social problems. I, I mean, we were talking uh, well, to Dan, yeah, please. I mean, the, 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 the rhetoric is that they do. I think somebody like Reed Hoffman, who lives deep, deep, deep inside the world of Silicon Valley, truly believes they do. You know, he's um, very rich and he's a billionaire and, and he's very philanthropic and, and, you know, doesn't spend a lot on himself. But everything he gives money to is on this model of, you know, we're going to make everybody in sub-Saharan Africa an entrepreneur or something like that. It's, it's, um, he truly, truly believes that, uh, a world of kind of mass entrepreneurship practiced by billions of individual, uh, uh, people is going to bring, you know, happiness and economic peace to the world. I don't think the evidence is there, but but it's a deep, deep belief in Silicon Valley. Uh, I just want to quickly add on that because you mean you mean we already see this kind of growing disillusionment that people are having with Silicon Valley, and, and you know there are very high demand for antitrust regulations among the public, you know, against tech giants. So, would you say that the network man model has already beginning to to not, not crumble, but at least show the very, very concrete signs how it will fail. Yes. Uh, I mean, definitely or fail or be modified. I, I, I think the, the dream that tech, big tech is going to save us all is, is really fading. And, you know, there's several parts of this, including um, in my field in journalism, the, the, you know, digitally oriented companies are, are, are all facing unionization drives. It's a, you know, part of uh, an article of faith used to be for tech that unions are no longer necessary because everybody's going to be entrepreneurial. Um, so that's happening. Um, 
then you have the break up the tech companies stuff, the, the, the antitrust energy that's happening both in Europe and the U.S. and is coming in the U.S. from both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and then you also have, I, I think, a widespread skepticism about the idea that the gig economy is a good place to be um, as uh, for your whole life you know, for having a good economic life if you're just an ordinary person and not a tech superstar. Um, you know, you're seeing this right now, uh, conversation about this uh, around um, the coronavirus crisis, um, where, you know, if you're me and you work in a university, you're really lucky because you can go to your remote location and your paycheck keeps coming and so on. But if you're an Uber driver, not so much. Um, so, so we're getting a very clear example of the shortcomings of the gig economy idea. So a common theme we see with the three eras and the three man that we talk about is that there seems to be like no successful model so far. And in the last chapter in your book, you provide us readers with what you believe is a solution to creating the optimal economy in society. Um, you mentioned this idea of pluralism. Could you explain to us what pluralism is and give us a little more about your vision of what pluralism looks like, um, specifically in today's world? Sure. So, you know, I, I sketch out these big ideas. I, I don't think, I think each of them has something going for it and none has totally failed. So I think one of the problems is thinking there's one big idea, one big solution um, to um, as a kind of economic political model that'll fix everything and work forever. Um, so, so in general, uh, I, I am for a messier, more complicated, more mixed, and more uh, sort of conceptually muddled world uh, in which um, the interests of various people are attended to in which many ideas are embedded in our system, not just one big idea. Um, so pluralism is, is a kind of faded uh, political tradition um, that, that uh, says, let's see, pluralism is a, is a way to organize the game, but doesn't have one big idea of, of how the society should be. Instead, it says you should have a, uh, you know, a democratic society in which um, many organized groups struggle for primacy at all times and, and through their never-ending struggles, uh, it's more likely that a good society will emerge than if you have a sort of elite-driven society where one group with, with one set of ideas can kind of impose that on everybody else. Um, the, the founder of pluralism in the U.S., at least, uh, was a uh, you know, political scientist and very eccentric person named Arthur Bentley, who um, was... Uh, most prominent in the early 20th century. Um, the, the, the whole pluralist tradition kind of faded. And, and I think the, com the country 
fell in love more with either market-based solutions for conservatives or a sort of elite liberalism where, where um, a, a kind of uh, upper class of liberal intellectuals would get to decide what happened. So pluralism, you know, is more in love with politics and, and uh, likes interest groups and, and social movements and so on. So it's, it's, it's less of an outcome and more of a process. And so when we talk about this process, um, you write in your book that in a pluralist system, the way to fight unacceptable views would be to out-organize the people promoting them. Right. And one of the biggest criticisms of pluralism is that, you know, when there's these very powerful institutions with more money or when power is concentrated in within certain individuals, um, they have they can abuse this power to promote their interest over others. And in situations such as these, um, how, how do we out organize um, these people in these situations? And what do we need to do in order to continue to, I guess, promote pluralism and to make that more of a popular thing amongst all of us in society? Um, you know, the argument against pluralism has always been that, rich people will capture the system, rich people and rich interests and ordinary people won't be represented. Um, but, you know, that's already a problem. And, and so I, I do think that the way the U S handles money in politics is kind of uniquely bad. And, and many other places in the world provide a model for how to handle it better. But it's also true that as you go back and and see um, these very convincing sounding arguments that in a pluralist system, uh, only wealthy corporate interests uh, can ever win. Um, and then you see, you know, it makes sense at the time, but, but other kinds of interests, uh, you know, do out-organize and, and do well. You know, the civil rights movement, um, which uh, had no real establishment support in its early days, um, was stunningly successful without any money. Ditto the feminist movement, ditto the environmentalist movement. So um, I'm skeptical of the idea that, uh, you know, quote unquote, the good guys in politics can never have influence and can never win um, in a, in a system built around competition of political interests. Um, I do think again, that the excessive influence of people with money is a real problem and it can be addressed, but I don't think that means we need a model where we don't allow many different interest groups to, to compete as, as, as kind of the way to work things out. Are you optimistic at all, Professor Lemon? Because on page 57 of Transaction Man, you, you actually wrote, you know, some people start as optimists seeing the world as a shimmering field of unrealized possibilities. And as they age, they become pessimistic, preoccupied with everything that, that can go wrong. So uh, I'm, I'm really curious to hear that, you know, after you've done so much research and really kind of mapping out the history of capitalism and, and economy for the United States in the past couple of, of decades. Um, are you, are you optimistic about the next step? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, 
by nature. So yes, I am. And I think, you know, you're seeing right now a lot of the issues that, that I started working on this book because I was frustrated that they weren't being discussed. They're being discussed. So that's great. Um, and, and the whole tenor of the conversation is, is I feel like when I started the book, at least the little part of the world I'm in was completely celebrating the transaction man mindset still. Um, and that's over now. So, so yes, I am optimistic. I, I suppose the world will probably soon uh, stop celebrating the whole network man mentality as well. Yeah, I think that's. I think that was always an idea that you know Silicon Valley people had, but hadn't been that widely adopted. And, and a lot of the kind of important, you know, intellectual allies of Silicon Valley have really shifted including Tim Wu and, and, and others. Um, so I, th I think that's, that's changed a lot very recently. Uh, and, and as you sort of rightly put uh, your fingers on that, you are optimistic in the long run in the sense that, you know, you, you do feel like this vision of pluralism and a kind of a different economic model will emerge. But do you have any particularly... Uh, specific thoughts on how this new economic model will shape up, what form it will. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that um, you need, the main thing I want to say is you need to have government or governments in the picture as you build an economy. Um, so uh, if, if you have a model where, um, the market forces and, and market institutions on their own are supposed to do the entire job of building a good economy. I don't think that's going to work um, because they, they, they have too much pressure in the other direction. So, so the, a, a more sort of balanced system of what you would call political economy where uh state institutions or political institutions and market institutions are cooperating to, to create a, a model of capitalism that works for most people, that would be the way to go. And that's pluralistic itself, I think. Right. That, that sounds like a, a vision that we all very much hope to achieve at one point. Um, you... You mentioned earlier that you are not only sort of working on Transaction Man and a professor, but you're also a book publisher and uh, you help publish uh, the Columbia Global Reports and you host the podcast Underreported uh, for, for the series of reports. Uh, I know you have to go soon, so I just kind of want to tie off the interview with a couple questions on journalism and mm -hmm. um, this uh, book publishing um, the career that you also have. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about Columbia Global Reports, what you kind of hope to achieve, uh, achieve with that? I, I suppose it's even longer form of journalism, you know, in, in one sense. Right. So, so Columbia Global Reports um, is about to celebrate in the fall its fifth anniversary, and it's a publishing company at Columbia, partly subsidized by Columbia, uh, small, that, that publishes five or six um, kind of novella-length books a year 
uh, in a uniform, attractive quality paperback format, format on uh, major topics that we think aren't being reported by the press because they're not, you know, part of the events that are happening right this second. So um, we're up to, you know, 24, 25 books. We've published books on, on many different topics. And we're trying, we're part of the new ecosystem of uh, nonprofit journalism because, um, you know, in, in one of the reasons I wrote Transaction Man was, and, and started the publishing company was, you know, the distress I was feeling watching my own field of journalism that I've spent my life in just have this kind of economic collapse that's very disturbing, I think, in the, in the social sense and for a lot of my friends who lost their jobs. So there's a bunch of us who have started not-for-profit, smaller journalism organizations to fill in some of the gaps that have been left by the enormous shrinkage of market sector journalism. And, and we're trying to play our part in that. By by the kind of the economic collapse, do you mean just, I mean, fewer people read newspapers these days? And Well, uh, if you are a journalist, the way you notice it is many fewer people work in journalism these days. The, the newspaper industry's employment is about half lost in the 21st century. Um, and, and, you know, revenues um, have plummeted. Um, so I, I, I think you'd find that, that, you know, you might find that readership, depending on how you measure, is actually up, but, but revenues are way down and employment is way down. And what that means is that news organizations can't, a lot of them have gone out of business and the ones that still exist uh, can do a lot less original reporting. We're, our, we have a, the next Columbia Global Reports book is on Saudi Arabia uh, and religion. But the one after that coming out in the summer is on the, the collapse of local journalism in the U.S. and to some extent internationally. Because uh, uh, the way those reports are structured is like there, there are 100 pages, there are a small booklet, and you can really get a extremely insightful range of of ideas and historical facts from those readings. And I really love them. And I think it really contrasts with the idea of, you know, high frequency, you know, news cycles and you constantly get your push notifications from Facebook or Twitter. So, so I kind of just want to ask you this slightly more metaphysical or philosophical question is that, you know, in this very hyper-connected world, as we are constantly bombarded by news stories and blogs and, and things, uh, do you think that most of those information is, by construction, full of noise, uh, whereas longer form of journalism reports, whether it's podcasting or, or uh, in the form of a book, uh, would be more stripped out of those noises and thus be able to provide a more fundamental knowledge uh, to the to the readers? So, so is that kind of your way out of this problem, or? Well, there isn't one way out of the problem. I. I... I would frame it in a slightly different way than around how long things are. Um, you know, if you're talking about the, the society as a whole, I mean, for, for Columbia world, Columbia global reports, we're, you know, we found a niche that nobody else was in. So, you know, that's great. And we do long form journalism, but 
I, I don't want to say that only long form journalism has value. You know, the the Constitution, the First Amendment to the Constitution talks about uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, so as it's evolved, what I would say press means is original reporting, is going out and gathering information that people wouldn't have access to before. And what I would say freedom of speech means, at least in the internet era, is anybody can say anything they want and put it out there for a global audience. So we're in a free speech explosion because of Twitter and Medium and Facebook and so on. Um, But there's a shrinkage in the part of journalism that does uh, original you know, interviewing and other forms of information gathering. So, so I think we urgently need to find ways, you know, I'm not saying one has value and the other doesn't have value, but I, I am saying we really don't have a problem now with kind of free speech. I mean, you can find anybody saying anything somewhere in the online world and everybody has a soapbox to stand on. So we, we are awash in opinion, and that's fine. Um, we are in a shortage of what I would call news or reporting. Um, and, and that's a problem that I think we really need to address. That's uh, just a brilliant uh, distinction between freedom of speech and, and press. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Uh, I, I do want to end the show really quickly uh, by asking you uh, one last question is that, you know, since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, uh, I always ask our guests at the end, what's the punchline here, you know, for, for your book, Transaction Man, or for the future of our society, or uh, for journalism, or any of the other topics that you might, may have in mind for us? Well, you know, as you're thinking, we, we've said some of this, but as you're thinking about an economic society, uh, what you're thinking about is what kind of society would give people, uh, many millions of people, most people, the mass of people, a good life um, and, and a measure of security and freedom. Um, so those are you know, the mega questions of the world. And I'm really glad that they're sort of queued up and we're actively debating them. I think you need... Um, to have that question settled by struggle between governments and market institutions, rather than by saying market institutions can do it on their own. And this will produce messy, disorganized uh, solutions that, that, that don't look good in a lab or a classroom, but will work better for most people and attend better to most people's needs. I, I think that's really the model going forward is that not only involving the market mechanism, but also, uh, but also the, sort of the democratic institution and uh, really having enforceable, strong regulations that can keep everybody in check. That, that, uh, that totally makes sense. Uh, well, th- thank you so much for ending on such a brilliant note and bring so many wonderful insights to our show today, Professor Lemon. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, and, and Sean, thanks so much for doing this interview with me, uh, you know, educating me on some of those matters and, you know, co-hosting the show with me all the way from Taiwan. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, I loved, I really enjoyed reading your book, Professor Lemon. Um, I learned so much from it. And thank you so much again for taking the time to um, do this interview with us and giving us even more insights about uh, your brilliant book. Okay, well, be well. And this concludes our episode with Professor Nicholas Lemon. He is the former dean at Columbia Journalism School and is a publisher of Columbia Global Reports. And we just had a long conversation about his newest book, Transaction Man, uh, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream. You should totally purchase this book on Amazon. It's it's an amazing book. Uh, Really walked us through some of the... uh, pivotal moments and transformation of the American economic history uh, from, you know, institution no man, which is this idea of FDRs, you know, chief theorists of the economy, imagining a society dominated by large corporations and uh, having a lot of corporate welfares and then gradually transitioning to uh, transaction man society, which is sort of by the 1970s and, and late 20th century when finance started to take more of a role in our society. And now more recently, this idea of network man, which is symbolized by LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman, which is the idea that you hope to use networks, efficient economic networks uh, to re-knit the social fabric and bring out more efficient uh, social outcomes, uh, which probably won't work out either. So, so uh, we've walked through some of those mindsets, some of those models. It's a it's a wonderful episode. I highly recommend you to, to read the book. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Policy Punchline today. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Twitter. Um, uh, rate and review us. Visit us on policypunchline.com. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.